1: figure out what in the world to talk about to people who listen to me on the radio. I'm not assuming that all of you do by any means, but a good number of you do. And if you've been listening for any length of time, you know that you hear the same things over and over and over. And it comes down always to two simple words, trust and obey. Believe that God is faithful and do what he says. And I do believe that that is the only way, as the old gospel hymn says, trust and obey for there's what? No other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And I try to make my talks as as practical, as relevant, as down to earth as I possibly can. But as I was thinking about what to talk about tonight, I decided to make it on the subject of will Versus feelings Some of you know the story of Fanny Crosby that wonderful hymn writer Who when she was about six weeks old was given the wrong medicine in her eyes She had an inflammation and the doctor put hot poultices on her eyes and burned the corneas so that she was permanently blind she became a popular lecturer, a pianist, and organist, married one of her students, also a blind musician and composer whom she had taught at the New York Institute for the Blind. And they had only one child, and that child died. But at age nine, Fanny Crosby had written this, Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and cry because I'm blind, I cannot, nor I won't. Now there's a lovely example and a very simple down-to-earth example of the choice to be grateful instead of complaining. I'm sure that anyone who is born with any kind of a handicap or acquires any sort of a handicap Later on, a natural tendency, of course, would be to be miserable and perhaps bitter against God. But here's a little girl who, at the age of nine, had already learned that lesson. She enjoyed many blessings that other people don't. And if we can make up our minds to be the kind of people who are thankful for what we have, instead of complaining about what we haven't, life will be infinitely simpler and far more joyful. There are many examples in Scripture of will versus feelings, and Psalm 42 is a good place to start. He talks about the deer panting for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God, with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Obviously, those days are past for the psalmist at the point where he's writing this, and then he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. And that word put is a very blunt, simple, completely comprehensible word, isn't it? If you put the book on the table, it is an act of the will. It is a simple thing and you just do it. And so now he has described how he's tempted to feel and he has been feeling cast down and distressed And it's as though he takes himself by the scruff of the neck and says, Why are you cast down, my soul? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. And I thought that was a very interesting combination of words there. My soul is downcast within me, therefore, for the very reason that it is downcast, I am going to put my hope in God and remember God. And he ends with, in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Here's this natural feeling again coming to the surface. Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? And it's very possible that some of you have been taunted with those words, perhaps from someone else, or perhaps from our arch enemy, the devil. And he certainly is there to taunt us. Where is your God? And then the psalm ends with, why are you cast down on my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. And in another place in the Psalms, he says, what time I am afraid, I will trust. And so we've got those two things, will and feelings, juxtaposed in one verse. Fear is a feeling, isn't it? It's an emotion. And when I am afraid, this is what I will do. He says, I will put my trust in you. All of us, act against our feelings quite often. Now, probably none of us acts against our feelings as often as we should. But suppose we take the example of getting up in the morning. I don't suppose that everybody here is just so eager and enthusiastic about the idea of getting out of bed on a freezing winter morning, as some other people might be. But if, when the alarm clock goes off, you're, you put your feet on the floor, not because you want to, but because you decide to, because you have to, because you will to. You have things to do. So let's not uh, misunderstand what we're talking about, will versus feelings. If we always went with our feelings, we would be in a terrible mess, wouldn't we? And the world is in enough of a mess because so many people do go by their feelings. And one of the watchwords of today's generation younger generation is go with your feelings and i just want to say i cannot imagine a course more calculated to lead to misery than going with your feelings and furthermore which ones are you going to go with (laughs) if you're anything like me you've got a whole bunch of conflicting feelings well i'll go this way and then that way and then the other way and i don't i don't know where to go and i'll find myself on dead center whereas the course of my life must be governed by God himself, and I must choose to trust him, choose to obey him. It depends not on what's happening or what has happened, but on what we choose to do with it. All of us know people who have been through horrible trials and tribulations, and some of them have turned into bitter, totally unget along withable people. We had a lady in our church who was like a tigress in a corner. It didn't make any difference who it was that approached her, whether she'd ever seen them before or not. She would just lash out in some nasty, rude way. And people didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to make of her. And of course, it goes without saying, people avoided her whenever they possibly could. And I couldn't help believing that this, this poor lady must have had some terrible trauma in her background, something that made her very bitter, probably bitter against God, which invariably shows itself in bitterness against people. So there's one result of suffering, tribulation, affliction. But then you also know people who have been through equally bad things, and they turned out pure gold. What makes a difference? If you think back to the people whose lives have most significantly influenced yours for Christ, the people who have set an example of spiritual godliness and joy, I think you will find, if you have the opportunity to probe that person's life that in every single case there are people who have suffered. What is the difference? Will versus feelings. Anybody feels bad when they suffer. Our human nature rebels against that. And yet we know that we can say, Lord, Lord, You know what you're doing. You've got the whole world in your hands. You have allowed this to happen to me. I don't know why. I don't need to know why, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to thank you, and I'm going to rejoice. So events never make a saint out of anybody. It is the response. The same event might make a criminal out of one person and a saint out of of another, because the response is different. With what do you go? Your feelings or your choice? Now the psalmist gives us an example of choosing to put his trust in God. And Fanny Crosby, little girl, sets another example that puts us to shame Several years ago, I read an absolutely um, riveting book, fascinating book, but one of the most painful that I've ever read, another one of those books describing conditions in the Nazi concentration camps. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the book by Viktor Frankl called The Meaning of Life. And although Viktor Frankl didn't write from a Christian standpoint, he certainly believed in God, And he describes the different ways in which people responded to the hideous treatment. And I cannot imagine any worse suffering than that which has been endured by millions. Uh, And of course, there were six million or so killed, but there were also millions who survived. And I know one of those myself. She lives in Massachusetts. She still has the tattoo on her arm and she has told me what it was like in Auschwitz but Viktor Frankl said that there were those people there were always a few people who would give their one daily piece of bread to somebody else and they would go around the camp comforting people although they themselves were in exactly the same situation and when one man was punished by fasting for two days. These people would refuse their food for two days in order to comfort and support this man. The difference, he says, is the choice of attitudes. And it was the people who chose the right attitudes that survived most often. You know, doctors will tell us that there is nothing worse for your health than bitterness and anger and resentment bottled up inside it can kill you it can give you cancer they say now I'd like you to give yourself a little test about this question of your will versus your feelings how about the matter of prayer in your life how much of it do you do how Joyfully, do you do it? With what kind of feelings do you come out of your prayer time? Do you feel better all the time? Do you feel good because you think, well, I got that over with now? Um, Did you feel God's conscious presence while you were praying? Were you full of delight? Did you feel spiritual or pious? when you dragged yourself out of bed perhaps early in the morning in order to have quiet time with the Lord before you met anybody else? Or would you have said, I didn't really get a thing out of it. I went through the prayers, but I sure didn't get much out of it, and I felt coldness. Well, you're looking at somebody who feels that most of the time. I don't feel spiritual when I go to my prayer time. I don't consciously sense the presence of God. Those are my feelings. And I suppose it has things to do with my personality, but so what? You know, any psychiatrist would have a field day with my personality telling me I'm melancholic and uh, choleric and I don't know what horrible combination, whatever it is. And I could say, well, that's just me, you know, gang. you got to love me because this is the way I am. And, of course, the genes came down through all these people, and I happen to be working on photo albums for my grandchildren right now, and I have one picture of their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And if you figure that out, in that generation, you would have 128 grandparents. Did you ever stop to think about that? You go back that far, you have 128 grandparents. Now, I only have one picture out of 128, to show to my grandchildren, but it, it does absolutely fascinate me to think that that man had certain genes which have been passed down through all the generations into me, and hence into my daughter and into my grandchildren. That may be a reason, but it's not an excuse, <laughs> it is never an excuse. I can't say to you, well, this is me, you got to love me, gang, just the way I am. It's not going to work, because God has given us a new heart. We are a new act of creation. And he has given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So I would think that maybe I should only speak for myself, but I know that one of the greatest tests for me daily is this matter of prayer. And I was interested in reading C.S. Lewis's wonderful book on the subject of prayer. It's called Letters to Malcolm, in case you haven't read it, that very few people enjoy praying. Now, I know some people who tell me they absolutely love it. There isn't anything else they'd rather do than pray. My mind goes in a thousand directions. I'm thinking, now, what am I going to talk about on Gateway to Joy next time? Or how am I going to, what kind of soup am I going to make for Lars for lunch? I mean, it goes in 59 different directions the minute I get down on my knees because we have an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, and he can't stand it when you get down on your knees. So what else is new? His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. So I'm going to refuse Satan's temptation to say, you're not spiritual enough, you didn't feel the presence of God, you didn't get a thing out of it, you weren't conscious of God's presence, you felt coldness, forget it. What is the point of praying? Until you can feel good and you can feel spiritual. Well, that's gonna be a lifetime job for me. I've been at this for more than 50 years trying to learn. But I come and I say, Lord, here I am in your presence. I use the words of others who, who express what I want to say but wouldn't know how. For example, a very ancient prayer that the church has been praying for almost these 2,000 years. It begins, we praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. Now, I can do that. I can say, I praise you, I acknowledge you to be the Lord. All the earth doth worship thee, the Father everlasting. To thee all angels cry aloud, the heavens and all the powers therein. To thee cherubim and seraphim continually do cry, Holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabaoth. Heaven and earth are full of the majesty of thy glory. And this part I especially love. The glorious company of the apostles praise thee. The goodly fellowship of the prophets praise thee. The noble army of martyrs praise thee. And I think, now my one feeble little voice, this one lone individual alone in a room in the dark, is permitted, allowed, given the privilege of joining my prayers with those of the glorious company of the apostles and the goodly fellowship of the prophets and the noble army of martyrs. Isn't that wonderful? I just think that is so thrilling. So it carries me out of myself, away from my tiny little concerns, my list of things that I want God to do for me today and for everybody else that I'm praying for. Forget about whether I feel God's presence or not. He is there because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. God will always be there. And you don't have to feel anything. But you do have to will to do it. Get down on your knees or stand up or sit, whatever you want to do. I'm not going to tell you what physical posture you need to take. But I like to start by standing and repeating that, we praise the O God, prayer. And I look out the window, see the stars, realize that it's the hand that made those stars that is placed on my head, and he says, I love you. You're my child. And I think maybe he might even say, thank you for coming and keeping this appointment. I was here. I'm glad you came. So don't worry about your feelings in any area. The great question is, what do I do with my feelings? I bring them under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I can offer both my feelings and my will to God. And that gives me comfort, too, because he takes them. He knows all about my distractions. He knows about my reluctance to pray, my difficulties, my coldness, my feeling that he's not really there. And so I say, Lord, you know about this. Here it is. I surrender it to you. And for for me, it's a very helpful thing to just use a small physical gesture like that down on my knees lift up my hands and say Lord here it is all the coldness all the distractions all the doubts all the reluctance and I give it to you along with my will and I say not my will thine be done Lord and the bottom line to our prayers shouldn't it always be thy will be done we really never know exactly whether we are praying in the will of God. We may feel very sure about the particular objective, but we really don't know anything about God's timing. And George Mueller, you know, prayed for the salvation of his brother, I believe, for about 40 years and died before he ever saw his brother come to Christ. But his brother came to Christ, afterwards. My father prayed specifically that my brother Tom would marry a beautiful southern girl from Birmingham, Alabama. (laughs) Now, my father knew this girl. I mean, he didn't just pick Birmingham, Alabama, and he certainly didn't just pick a southerner. But it so happened that my father was a member of the board of the China Inland Mission, and they were the ones who screened the prospective candidates. And so one day, this lovely girl from Birmingham, Alabama, was a candidate to go to Japan. And my father sat there on the board, listening to her answers to their questions, and had been praying for years that God would give Tom the right wife, and so he began to pray that God would give this woman to Tom. And he went home and told my mother about her, and said, now I think we need to pray that God will give Loveless to Tom. Her name is Loveless. And about a year later, he said to my mother, Now, are you still praying that the Lord will give Lovelace to Tom? And mother said, No, I haven't been praying that God would give loveless to Tom. I don't know whether she's the right one or not. I've been praying all along, ever since they were born, for each of my children that God would give them the right spouses. My father said, I believe you and I should be praying specifically for this girl. <laughs> well, I don't know whether my mother ever did. But my father died. But guess what? Tom married Lovelace after he died. And it was an impossibility really because Tom was teaching in England in a boys' school and Lovelace was in Japan. How was God ever going to bring them together? Well, God knows how to do things like that. The point is be specific in your prayers but ask God to do what he wants to do. Sometimes he gives you a specific burden that you feel very sure he wants to answer. And I think that's exactly what he did with my father, but he didn't give my mother the same kind of a burden, so that was fine. But they both did the praying. Now, I don't know how many of you are familiar with this wonderful little old book called Daily Strength for Daily Needs. It's been in print for more than a hundred years. And it just so happens that the passage for today fits in exactly with what I wanted to say. This is by somebody named J.H. Tom, T-H-O-M. When we remember our temptations to give quick indulgence to disappointment or irritation or unsympathizing weariness, and how hard a thing it is from day to day to meet our fellow men, our neighbors, or even our own households, in all moods, in all discordances between the world without us and the frames within, in all states of health, of solicitude, of preoccupation, and show no signs of impatience, ungentleness, or unobservant self-absorption, with only kindly feeling, finding expression, and ungenial feeling, at least inwardly imprisoned. Now, there's a phrase for you. Kindly feeling finding expression and that takes will over feelings an ungenial feeling at least inwardly imprisoned keep your nasty thoughts to yourself shut your mouth And the Lord is constantly telling me that I've got to learn to keep my mouth shut more often And here I am talking to all you people But there is a time to be silent and a time to talk, and I trust that I'm within the will of God and talking to you right now, but you don't know how many times the Lord just puts a check on me and says, none of your business, keep your mouth shut. But I need to imprison inwardly my ungenial feelings. Then, he says, we shall be ready to acknowledge that the man who has thus attained is master of himself, And in the graciousness of his power is fashioned upon the style of the perfect man. Disappointment, irritation, unsympathizing weariness. Feelings, aren't they? Little disappointment. Your plan didn't work out. You didn't get to do exactly what you wanted to do. Some interruption came. How do you respond? Do you imprison your ungenial feelings? Or do you just let it all hang out? Do you fall to pieces? I've been greatly taught by a book called Prayer in Faith. And please don't ask me where, to, where you can find it. It's been out of print for years. This person is talking about the psalmist's word, they that sow in tears shall we reap in joy. She says, it is good that we should have to submit to what we do not understand. It teaches us the laws of faith and hope. It is good that we should have to do what we would rather not, in circumstances not of our choice. It is good that there should be always something to prick us on, something to remind us that we are in an enemy's country and belong to a marching column. It is good that every creature we lean upon should fail or disappoint us. It is good that we should meet with checks and failures in what we undertake to keep us humble and prayerful. All these things belong to sowing in tears. You know, God seems to have laid out the order of things in this world, not for a general and brilliant triumph, but for the hidden sanctification of souls. And back to those people who have influenced your life, they have been sanctified through suffering. And remember that the Bible tells us that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he enjoyed. No. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Now, I want to say a word to you parents of young children. Have you thought about how important it is to teach even small children to control their feelings? Do you have to let children scream and cry? Well, my mother always would say to us, if you don't stop crying, I am going to what? I imagine some of you mothers would have said the same thing. (laughs) Give you something to cry about. And we knew exactly what that was, that little 18-inch switch over the door of every room in the house. And Amy Carmichael tells in her biography of how when she was a small child, she came to her mother and said she had very terrible pain. So her mother gave her some pink powder and Amy came back and said, but it's, it hasn't gone away. It's a very bad pain. And her mother said, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. But mother, it is an unbearable pain. And her mother said, I'm afraid you must bear it patiently. Well, I'm sure that my daughter must have taught that to her little Colleen when Colleen was a very small child because I happened to be at dinner one evening and Colleen was sitting in her high chair And she had skinned her knee or something. She had some minor bruise. And in the middle of the meal, apropos of nothing, she looked up brightly and said to her mother, Mommy, am I I bearing this patiently? (laughs) And not very long ago, Val said that her youngest, Theo, refused to eat his food, the food that she had put in front of him. And he simply began to scream. And he can raise the roof. And she looked him straight in the eye. She spoke his name, and she said very quietly, Theo, you may not scream. And he continued to scream. And so she quietly removed him from the high chair. She didn't yank him out. She didn't scream at him or yell at him in any way. And she carried him over to the sofa in the family room, which he was still visible to us at the table. She put him down on the sofa, and she got down on her knees in front of him, and she looked him straight in the eye, and she said, Theo, I want you to stop screaming and you must eat your food you may not scream you must eat your food and I think she must have repeated this three or four times finally he had to be spanked but that was an early lesson this child was not yet three in learning to conquer his feelings by willing to obey his mother And you, fathers and mothers, are God to your children. You represent the authority of God in their lives and all the other things, the warmth and the love and the care and protection and all the other things that God does for his children. So teach your small children self-control. One of the things that I noticed about the Indians, I learned many, many lessons from the Indians that I lived with in the jungle of Ecuador and tried to put those into practice when I had a child of my own. And of course, Valerie was born on the edge of the jungle and grew up in the jungle, so she was just exactly like the Indian children in being able to put up with all kinds of hurts without making a fuss. Indians never fuss. In fact, there is hardly any vocabulary for complaining Everybody goes. Imagine that. I mean, we have we have a very, shall we say, broad vocabulary for complaining, and we have words for the weather. And I have never heard an Indian talk about the weather in what it, positively or negatively because they didn't have any words to describe it. It either is raining or it isn't. The sun is out or it's not. It's cold or it's hot. But there were no comments about it whatsoever and if a child stepped on a thorn which everybody did sooner or later we went we all went barefoot there wasn't any other way to walk on muddy jungle trails you can't wear shoes and uh, so of course there would be thorns in your feet and splinters under your toenails and all sorts of things i've picked out i've pulled out with my tweezers some practically boards from underneath some of those men's Feet because of course when the men went hunting they ran at top speed through the jungle where there wasn't even a trail if they knew that the pigs had gone that way the wild pigs or the wild boar or whatever it was nobody fussed and I knew it was absolutely killing them when I was pulling that thing out you know the, the, the most noise that anybody ever made some of those men would just put their heads back and close their eyes and just go tsk, 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 tsk. <laughs> that was the worst complaint I ever heard and those children, they could step on a hot coal, and that happened too. Of course, their feet were very tough, and I've seen my daughter step on a hot coal without even knowing she'd done it. So God does make provision for the necessities of our lives. But I learned that our children in this country complain because we teach them to complain. They learn it from us. And that is a truth, and we better get that through our heads. Then there's this wonderful story in the Bible, in Habakkuk, the last chapter, where he describes all sorts of dreadful things going on, and there's no denying the evil in the world. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. I won't read it all. I'm skipping along. He says, His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. Think what that phrase would mean to the people of Kobe. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Think of the people in Europe, the floods. Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Now these are great worldwide, global, and national calamities that he's talking about. And he says in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Feelings are real, aren't they? Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the, for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud. And now he brings it right down to his own personal situation. Your faith perhaps may operate in broad general categories. And you could get up and give a great talk about trusting God. But where does the rubber meet the road? It's when it touches you personally. In a small way, perhaps, where there are no heroics, where nobody's ever going to report you or you're not going to get an article in the newspaper or write a prayer letter that everybody's going to think is wonderful. Some small hidden form of suffering. He says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and that would be a pretty big disaster, wouldn't it, for a vintner, for the man who has the olive trees, and for the the one who has grapes, he's a vintner, isn't he? And the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. Do you choose to be joyful? Joy is not incompatible with suffering. The two things can go hand in hand. And I experienced right after my husband Jim's death that there were moments, certainly didn't last very long and they weren't many, but there were moments when I felt such exaltation and exaltation at the thought that Jim was now in the presence of God and could never suffer again, that I was just overflowing with joy and praise. But at the same time, I was a widow. My daughter was fatherless. yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And I do believe that God can give us the grace to do that. My friend, Nay Bailey, is a godly woman. She's worked with Campus Crusade for many years. She goes all over the world. She's written a book called Faith is Not a Feeling. And Nay told the story of how, about a year or so ago, she was in Poland and rushing to catch a train in the station, and have, she had several heavy suitcases. And as she was struggling to get up the steps of the train, two very nice looking young men came along and said, May we help you? And so, very gladly, she turned over the suitcases to them and jumped on the train. They put the suitcases where she was sitting. And as the train was moving off, she saw the two men running down the platform, and she felt in the shoulder bag that she had and discovered that they had gone off with passport, tickets, all her money. You know what Nay did? Immediately she said to the Lord, I don't know why you've let this happen, Lord, but I am going to choose to thank you. Now, I cannot imagine a more terrifying feeling than suddenly you don't have your money, your passport, your your traveler's checks, and all the other things which are essential for travel in a country like that. And, of course, she went, the first chance she got, when she got off the train, she went to the police station and reported it, and she told the policeman, she said, I have been robbed of all these things, but she said, I have chosen to thank God for it. And of course, they looked at her as if she was really out of her tree. And she gave her testimony. And they said, well, you know, we'll take down all the data and everything, but this is a classic sting operation. This happens every day. One guy is putting the suitcases down. The other guy is pulling the stuff out of her shoulder bag. And they said, we've never heard of anybody getting anything back and they prayed that God would get back the things that she really needed. I don't remember which police station it was or what the passage of time was, it was not very long, before when she checked again with the police station they said your things are here. All but sixty dollars in American money had been returned. Now that doesn't always work, does it? People are going to say, well it would never work for me. what kind of a God do you think we have? God knows when one person needs this kind of an answer. And God knows when another person doesn't need that kind of an answer. And so his answer is no. I have something else for you. And if the great apostle Paul went to the Lord three times and asked for the removal of that thorn, whatever it was, apparently a relatively trifling thing, but painful and not the kind of thing one wants to live with, if one can get rid of it. And God's answer was no. Why? Because he didn't love Paul? Because Paul wasn't spiritual enough? Because Paul didn't really know how to pray? Because Paul wasn't feeling good about praying? Or he didn't feel the consciousness of God's presence? No, God had something infinitely more important for Paul to learn. And he couldn't learn it without the thorn. Even Paul, that spiritual giant. And God said, what you need is not a miracle to get that thorn out of there. What you need is this lesson. My grace is all you need. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. I like the translation that says, power comes to its full strength in weakness. Will you choose to rejoice, to thank God in every circumstance, those little hidden disappointments, those private irritations? If we don't practice in the little things, we're not going to be prepared for the big ones. May God help us faithfully to offer up both our wills and our feelings for His glory.